But just to give you a little bit of an idea of the preaching calendar of the next several months, we finished um, putting together a preaching calendar for the next year. So we're going to be doing an Easter series up to the 16th, and then we're going to be jumping back into Acts from April 23rd through September 10th. Then we're going to be having a message called Acts 29, The Vision Continues. Then a six-week series on the Reformation to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the Wittenberg door on October 31st, 1517. Can't wait to celebrate that. Then we're going to get into the book of Jonah to switch it up and give us a little bit of Old Testament flavor and then finish out the year with our time in Advent. But this morning, we're starting a new series, and I am really excited about this series. The point of this series that we're beginning this morning is to look at how each person who has ever met the true Jesus has been forever changed and will never be the same as a result of meeting Jesus at the cross. We do not encounter the cross of Jesus Christ and ever leave the same. Last year we took a theological look at what Christ has accomplished at the cross when Christ died in real time in a real place in history. It forever changed things in the spiritual realm. This year we're going to look at who we are because of what Christ has accomplished. And though this is a little bit more of a personal application, it's no less theological because we are looking at theologically what Christ has done for us, how he's changed us. We're going to be looking at what took place on Easter and the events leading up to Easter and how they are intensely theological and must be looked at as such, and how there's a genuine transaction that took place at the cross, meaning that we were once one way, we met Jesus when we came to the cross, and now we are forever another way as a result of that encounter. So each message will be titled with a we are, and then a theological concept describing a personal reality that happened to us in Christ at the cross, and then we're going to use in Christ to tie it together. So we'll be beginning this week with we are new creations in Christ. Next week, we're going to look at we are predestined, called justified, and glorified in Christ. Monday, Thursday, we're going to be looking at how we are family in Christ. Good Friday, we're going to look at how we are wrapped up and covered, atoned for in Christ. And Easter Sunday, we are going to finish with a declaration both through the word and a declaration through baptism that we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us. So we're starting off this new series with looking at the reality of being new creations in Christ. When we encounter Jesus, we don't leave the same as we do when we encountered him. This has been seen throughout the Bible, but think about all of the people, if all you had was the Bible, if we didn't have an entire church to look around and all these testimonies of people that we know to be able to look at, if we just had the scriptural account, think of all of the people who met Jesus, who left and were just profoundly changed, never to be the same. You have Matthew, the dishonest thief of a tax collector, who becomes one of the early disciples. Nicodemus, the religious man of high reputation, the sinful woman caught in adultery, the demon-possessed 
demon-possessed man forced to live his life away from society lived out in a cave in the middle of nowhere. The notorious sinner of a woman who comes in and washes Jesus' feet with her hair. The Roman centurion. The woman at the well in John 4. John and James, these two who are known as the sons of thunder who became the apostle of love and the thief on the cross being crucified next to Jesus. Those are just a couple of examples of people who through brief encounters with the Christ left and were never the same as a result of their time of Jesus. And 2,000 years of people retelling the story of Jesus, trying to deny the authenticity of the story of Jesus, trying to change the story of Jesus in order to make it more relevant to a newer, newer audience, people trying to culturally appropriate the message of Jesus, world leaders using the name of Jesus towards their own ends rather than really invoking the name of Jesus, people using the name of Jesus more as a term of derision than as identifying him as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, all of that, and still Jesus is making new every single person who ever meets him at Calvary. And this is why we started our series with new creations in Christ, because this text tells the story of how we once regarded Jesus differently than the way that we do now, but how God was good enough to stop us in our tracks, be able to lift our gaze up off of ourselves, and then we saw Jesus differently, and as a result, we saw ourselves differently. When God set this process in motion, we were made new at the cross. We are being made new at the cross, and we will eventually be made completely new finishing the work that was begun at the cross. And I got to tell you, before digging in, I think that every message should come back to the cross. Every message should come back to the person of Christ and the completed work of Christ in the gospel. But I love having a time of year where we get to celebrate that every single message comes back to the cross. Every single message comes back to the person of Christ. And every single message comes back to the redemptive work of the gospel. I mean, I, it is my theological conviction that every sermon should do that anyway, but I just, I praise God that there is a time of year where churches around the world are making it their theological focus to focus on the goodness of the cross of Jesus and lift up what Jesus has done at the cross and that we get to participate in that. So this week we're going to be looking at how we are new creations in Christ. The old is passing away and a new reality is taking over. Look with me starting in verse 11. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope that it is made known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving our cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but also live for the sake of he who died 
and was raised. So as he's writing to the Corinthians, he makes some statements that really only make sense if you are somebody who has been made new at the cross. He begins with this foundation of the fear of the Lord in verse 11, saying, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So he begins with this fear of the Lord, caring more about the heart than the outward appearance and no longer living for ourselves is the point of those first five verses. And you might be thinking, I know people that do not know Jesus who have a fear of the Lord. Or I know people who do not know Jesus who care more about the heart than outward appearance. Or I know people who live for others that are not compelled by their love for Christ. And I would argue that somebody can string together something that looks like that and some of these aspects of character for a season or somebody might even string them together for a prolonged season in a way that seems quite authentic. But Christ is the only way that we can string all of these things together in such a way that is just meaningful, authentic, and driven by the power of God for the long haul. Because Christ is the only place that we can go to in order to receive grace. I want you to understand that this morning. There is no other place that you can go to on this earth to be able to receive grace. Grace. Christ is the only dispenser of grace. He is the only place we can go to for grace. I was just talking to a friend this week about a book by Robbie Zacharias called The Lotus and the Cross, comparing grace and comparing karma. And what it does, it's a novel, but it takes a look at the perspective of grace and compares the teachings of Buddha versus the teachings of the Christ. And to test out their two teachings, they take this prostitute in India, and it has her in a boat going down the river Ganges, which is a high holy site in Buddhist literature. And as she's approaching death, she's looking for grace because she knows that she has to find something to be able to cover over a life that was just filled with mistake and regret. And all that Buddha could offer her was advice on changing her karma and how to live a more righteous life. While Christ showed her that she'd never be able to live the life that was righteous enough anyway, so Christ lived that righteous life on her behalf, and therefore instead of trying to be right enough, she only needed to embrace the grace of Christ that already was right enough on her behalf because she never could have done anything to be able to be made right enough because karma does not take your rightness and make you any more right. Only grace can do that transaction. And as the hymn writer said, it was grace that taught my heart the fear. And then, not only that, but I needed grace for that fear to relieve. It took the grace of Christ to teach our hearts to fear in a way where we knew that we needed something other than or larger than or outside of ourselves to begin with. It was grace that showed you that you need something greater than you. Because left to your own devices, you're going to think that you are pretty great and that you can look to you in order to find answers. And it's grace that shows you that you're not all that impressive after all. And that you need to go somewhere else because you is not going to be the impressive thing to be able to cover over the multitude of transgressions. So it's grace that leads you to the truth and it's grace that leads you to Christ, as the hymn writer has said. And these things, 
being described as the new nature in chapter 5 cannot take place without being made new at the cross. So again, looking at these verses describe the new us. Somebody who has been made new at the cross, according to verse 16, properly understands what it means to be propelled by the fuel of the Lord. He says he knows it. It's foundational for him. But not only does he know it, but it actually compels him in some sort of way. I mean, look at the sentence construct. It says, because he knows the fear of the Lord, he is compelled to be able to share God's truth with others. So this must be a pretty tangible motivator for somebody who is actually made new at the cross. I remember witnessing to this lady this one time and just sharing with her this basic truth out of 516 is knowing the fear of the Lord. It propels me to have to tell you these truths about the good news of Jesus Christ. You have to be able to hear about the fact that Jesus came and died for you. And then unless you put your faith in him and bend your knee in repentance and repent of your sin and trust in him and him alone as your savior, you will not see heaven. That is the only way to eternity. And I'm sharing this with her. I'm saying that the fear of God compels me. And she said, I would never want to worship a God who I had to fear. I remember just being so struck by this, thinking I would never want to worship a God that's not worthy of my fear. And just think about any, if there's any football fans here. Would you want an offensive lineman starting at tackle for your football team that wasn't worthy of your fear? Like, would you want to look at this guy and say, I don't want a guy on my team that's worthy of my fear. I want to be able to look at the offensive lineman on my team and say, that is a 350-pound just hog of a man, and I am scared to death of that guy. I mean, how much more would I... I would never want to worship a Lord that is not worthy of my fear. But instead of understanding fear rightly, we look at fear as something that cripples us in our society. But Paul says it didn't cripple him, but rightly understood it motivated him. And then he goes on from talking about that foundational truth to talk about how he doesn't live for the approval of others. I love how he throws in, we are not commending ourselves to you. This basically means this stuff that we're sharing is not because we want to make ourselves look good in your eyes. Because honestly, I don't care all that much about how I look in your eyes. Look, somebody who has been made new has a new identity. I don't have to seek identity by how you perceive me or how anybody else perceives me for that matter. Think about that, guys, please. Because people are going to leave here and they're going to forget about that. People are going to leave here and they're going to look at all the things that they show in the magazine rack as you're going up to the register that try to tell you what you should be able to seek approval in and what it looks like to be somebody who's worthy to be approved in this society. He's saying, I don't have to live for that anymore. How you perceive me is not where my approval lies. And that's what Paul is getting at. His identity is set. He doesn't need the approval of man in order to give him identity. Isn't that just one of the beauties of, as this series is named, being made new? That he can really say, we're not commending ourselves to you. We don't have to prove ourselves to you. 
We're just giving you a reason to boast in us, meaning to boast in the truth. There are so many people out there that live for what other people think. I mean, even down to the fact that the logo on their shirt or their purse is important to them because of some stranger that they'll never see again might read it. And in that one second, they might formulate an opinion of, oh, I like that name that I read on that purse of that person who I'll never see again. Even to the point where we advertise words across our backsides in this culture. Because people believe that by some message blasted across your butt, some stranger is going to read that and they're going to formulate an opinion. And what is it that the, what are you trying to achieve by that? What is this opinion that this stranger is going to get by reading some messaging glitter written across your butt? But people buy it and put it there for a reason because the love of Christ is not compelling them and they do care what other people think. Even to the point where somebody would rather not stick up for their own rights when they're being walked on so that they could be thought well of the abuser who is mistreating them or being unjust because there are very few lengths that people will not go to in order to be thought well of strangers who they may never meet again and that just blows my mind like why people care about what strangers think that you will never ever meet it and not only care but why people are controlled by these things i honestly just don't get it it it's a hard master to live for. But that's one of the beauties of being made new in Christ is I've already been given an identity, one that doesn't change ever, one that I don't need to in any way get the approval of others in order to add to, one that I don't have to put a message and glitter across my backside so that somebody could be able to say, wow, that's his identity. Christ has set that identity. Another foundational building block of the new us is that Paul says that they now look to the heart and not to outward appearances. It takes a new self to be able to do this because until we come to Christ, we don't have a new heart. When the prophets wrote about this new covenant that we were going to see, the new covenant that we're going to celebrate when we take communion here in a little bit, they did so in terms of God taking away this old heart that was inside of our chest and replacing it by giving us a new heart. The old, the, the old heart looks at things that pertain to the old heart. The old heart doesn't know how to look for the characteristics of a new heart because the old heart doesn't know how to be a new heart. But a new heart that's been made new knows that it doesn't have to look to outward appearances of the old heart. The new heart can look deeper than the surface of the outward appearances because the new heart has life pumping through it, the very life of Christ. So when it has life, it can look to life. But to do this, we have to be made new at the cross, which is where this series comes from. Another characteristic of a heart that's made new by Christ is it's compelled by the love of the Lord. He says in verses 15 and in 16 how the love of Christ controls us, having concluded that one died for all. And that in itself is worthy of its own message. It's hard to devote our lives completely towards loving another. But not just living for, but being compelled by love for another. Look, there's no selfish motive 
that's being described here in what Paul is talking about. There's no, what am I going to get out of the deal if I take my life and I devote it into the love and the service of another? It's a whole new way to consider being compelled by and being compelled to live for the love of another. So much that you could say, I'm not just compelled by this. Paul's saying, I'm absolutely controlled by it. I'm controlled by the love of Christ. And this love of Christ controls me so much that it compels me to live a life for those whom Christ has loved because now I have His lenses and I'm able to see how He saw. And the love of Christ compelled Him to live for others. I want to just ask a heart question for you before I move on. Does the love of Christ really control you? Like, as you look at this passage, do you identify what this is saying? Does the love of Christ control you? Does your heart just over and over just have this pumping in it? I am controlled and compelled by a new master, and this new master is not me or my desires. I am controlled by the love of Christ. Does your new self look like somebody who's controlled by the love of Christ or the preservation of self? And his new self, it says that it was raised with Christ. So he has a new purpose. It says, I no longer live for myself, but he lives for others. For the sake of the one who died, first of all, in verse 15, and then for those who he has died for. Wow, we looked already what it looks like to be compelled by the love of Christ. But to be made new and compelled and live for those whom Christ died for, that's a whole nother realm. Look, I I, want to put this bluntly. It doesn't take a new you to live for you. You don't need a new heart to live for you. The whole world gots to get mine. The whole world goes out there and lives for itself. The whole world understands what it means to look out for number one. You don't need a regenerated heart that's changed by the Savior of this world to be able to live for yourself, but to devote your life to living for the sake of another. That can't be done with the heart that you were born with. It takes a new heart. It takes a heart that's not made out of stone, but a new heart that was put there by God, made of flesh, with His Word actually written upon the tablets of our human heart. So the death of Christ compels us to be able to be made new by Christ, and then to be able to live not for ourselves, but for Christ, and then because of our love for Christ, to be able to live for others whom Christ has died for us. So how did we get there? Let me see if I can finish this up in the next couple of minutes. Look at verses 15 and 16. And he says, And he died for all, that all those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for the sake, uh, for their sake, died and was raised. So because we no longer live for ourselves, he died so that we wouldn't have to live for ourselves any longer. Our old creation was a life lived unto ourselves. That's what it means to be in your old creation. You might be a benevolent person. You might be a good person. I remember sharing the gospel with this Muslim guy, and I said, what do you do to be able to earn credit with Allah? And he said, well, that's why I'm doing this interview with you, because whenever I do something completely benevolent and it doesn't have any ulterior motives, that's credited to my account, and I get account with Allah. But I said, but 
you just told me it wasn't completely benevolent, that you actually did it so that you could get extra credit, so doesn't that wipe out the credit that you just served, and doesn't that just eradicate the whole purpose of doing this? And once he realized he was caught in a conundrum, I bought him a bagel and a cup of coffee, and at least thanked him for his time. But we can't just live purely for another when we're still living out the old heart. It's impossible. Our old creation was a life lived unto itself. So since one died, we no longer live our lives for the sake of ourselves, but for the one who died. Look, we don't believe that God exists for us. And if this is like the only thing that you get out of this, this morning, this is worth it. We don't believe that God exists for us. We believe that we exist for God. And man, does our society need to get this right. Man, do the books that are coming out need to get this right. Man, does what passes for Christian sermons need to get this right. God is not some genie who exists for us. God does not exist for us. We exist for him and for his pleasure. And we live lives in such a way where these are not mere words. And because we no longer live for ourselves, we see others as eternal beings, is what it says in verse 16. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. So the reason that Christ was able to keep his eyes fixed on the cross and not let this cup pass from him were two things. One, because of the Father's glory, and two, because he understood that we are eternal beings, meaning that he understood that he came to rescue people who are going to spend forever somewhere. Because forever is a long time. And this idea of forever compelled him so much that he couldn't see us just merely according to the flesh. Do you remember that when the cashier at the Walmart's annoying you? or when the person on the road is annoying you, or your unsaved little brother is annoying you, that we no longer regard anybody according to the flesh, but these are eternal beings that are going to spend eternity somewhere. So as those who died with Christ, that as the series says, are being made new with Christ, we also want to take on the eyes and the heart of Christ, and he never saw anyone merely according to the flesh, but he saw them all as eternal beings, meaning that we see ourselves as an eternal being, but we train our minds to be able to see and encounter others as eternal beings. How different would this world be if we really saw and believed that every interaction with another person was with an eternal being? But then it gets to the verse that I want to finish our time with and really hit on. Verse 17, such a beautiful verse. If you don't have this verse memorized, turn around and underline it in your neighbor's Bible. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Take your mind and wrap just take a, a moment and wrap your mind around that, folks. Anybody here, don't raise your hands, but anybody here ever feel uncomfortable in their own skin? That, that was me. Um, I, I was somebody who started um, abusing drugs and alcohol at a, at a young age, and one of those reasons was I was one of those people that just never felt comfortable in my own skin. I always felt like that proverbial square peg in a round whole. Anybody here ever struggle with self-esteem? You know what? You can listen to Dr. Phil sit around and blather about absolutely nothing, 
or you could come to Christ and be a brand new creation. I want to explain where this term new creation or recreation is coming from because, man, I, Dr. Phil can't teach you this stuff as he tells you, just go home and try better, do more, try better, do more. The gospel of try better, do more has never made anybody a new creation, and it never will, okay? New creation or recreation comes from the fact that we were all created perfect in the beginning. Creation was marred by sin and the fall, and that creation had to be done away with. A curse fell upon creation, upon all of its inhabitants that would ever come, and it impacted and corrupted every single aspect of life to where Romans chapter 8 says even all of creation is groaning for the day that the Creator is going to come and set this whole world right because the whole thing is broken and it's polluted. But the image of God and the beauty of God was also marred in this corruption. The perfect Imago Dei, the image of God was distorted. Beauty was distorted. What people think is beautiful is distorted. That's why people can go to pornography and say, that's beautiful. That's why people can look at these airbrushed women that are held up as a non realistic standard and say that is our standard of beauty. That's why people can look at these clothes that most of us will never afford and say that is what is determined by beauty because what we look at as beauty was distorted when mankind fell so our sense of beauty became distorted and calling us a new creation it means that God is actively at work recreating that which was broken and marred by sin. The old creation has done away with. When we were in Christ, the most beautiful words in the Bible, in Christ, means that when Christ was on that cross and he was atoning for all of that which is marred, for all of that which is not beautiful, you who are in Christ were literally in the body of Christ as he was on that cross atoning for each of these things. And when he said, it is finished, he paid for all of that and you were in him. Your imperfections were in him. Those things that you feel insecure about or have a low self-esteem about were in him. He covered it. He killed it. He said, it is finished. And just like the image of God, the beauty of God was marred when his creation fell away, it's being recreated in us. Again, this is why this series is called Being Made New at the Cross. God is recreating you who came to Christ into an image of his beauty. He's recreating the image that was marred. He's recreating his beauty that was fallen. How much more beautiful is that than the stupid self-esteem theology that passes for the gospel in today's culture. Amen? Amen. You can look at yourself in the mirror and say, God is recreating this. And he's turning it into something that's beautiful. Not what this world has to say about beautiful, but he is recreating that which was marred, and even the sense of beauty that was marred. God sees this as beautiful as he is recreating me. And this is really important remember because we get to hear about how beauty is marred every time we turn on the news and it's good to be able to look at the world and say look we live at a kingdom 
within a kingdom. And yes, this world is falling apart, but I could point to you many areas where his will is being done on earth just as it is in heaven and how he continues to provide for me my daily bread. And this kingdom within a kingdom, he is doing some beautiful, beautiful things. Even if this outer kingdom is decaying and even if this world is falling apart, he is recreating his beauty that was marred by the fall within the redeemed and within the church. Amen? So the old has actually passed away, according to this passage. It's passed away in God's sight. And you know what? It doesn't always feel like the old has passed away, does it? Sometimes, man, when you're struggling with sin, sometimes when you look in the mirror, sometimes when you wake up and you start playing musical chairs, you're trying to get up and you hear those knees and the elbows and everything else start to pop, you're like, man, this don't feel like a new creation. Guess what? In Christ, he sees you as if the old has completely passed away, and he is in the midst of creating something new. And he says, behold, I'm making all things new. Man, is that precious. The old has passed away, and not only has the old passed away, but he views you as if the new is already here. This isn't some future language. Let me speak to you pastorally for a second. All of those of you that look in the mirror and think, if I just lost 10 more pounds, then I could be beautiful. If I just was able to work out this issue with my marriage, then I could be beautiful. If I just had this or that, then I could be beautiful. He doesn't use future tense language. He doesn't say, the old is past. Start working really hard. Then the new will be here. Just... Come on, just lose a couple more pounds. Just get in a little bit better shape. Just, you know, just go get this cut. Just go get that makeup. Go get, change this or that. Then you'll start to be beautiful. He says, the new is here. Present tense. It is come. He is recreating in you something beautiful. And then he gives a description of this new life in verses 18 through 21. He says, all this is from God, through Christ reconciled to us to to himself, giving us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, and God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You ever hear somebody talk who had a long-term illness that finally got better. We ever see Lord of the Rings, that king who is under the spell, starts to get his life back, starts to regain his strength, or if you've lived with something and you finally get the, the cure for it, uh, they describe these things that they can now do in relation to the things that they can no longer do before. Uh, they tell you at this new lease that they have on life, I'm able to do these things that formerly I was not able to do. Well, that's what's happening in verses 18 through 20. God is describing here are some new things that are kind of come along with your new heart that comes along with this new relationship that comes along with being made new at the cross of Christ. And Paul repeats the good news of what happened at the cross to reiterate what Christ has done to make us who we are, that God took him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is called penal substitutionary atonement, folks. He took off this righteous cloak that he was wearing that was beautiful. He took all of your unbeauty. He took it and said, 
This is mine now. It's finished. He bore that on the cross. And then he covered you in the cloak of his righteousness. He covered your ugliness in a cloak of that which was beautiful. And when he rose again victorious, he covered those things that we see as ugly or marred by the fall forevermore and says that it's finished. So I have a couple of reflection questions for you as we close. Have you had an encounter where you were made new at the cross? We could take care of that today. Today can be the day of your salvation. You could put your trust in him and say, I, it's been hard to try to do this on my own. I can't anymore, but Jesus, I trust that you paid this price for me. I want eternal life that only comes through you. You could be made new at the cross. What are some areas where you are being made new at the cross? I really want you to be able to think through that. Can you point to tangible areas and say, this is an area where I can say it's because of Jesus that I am being made new? Have you truly died to living for self in favor of a life lived to Christ and for others? Are there areas where self is just sticking out very, very much so and it needs to be covered by Christ? What are some examples of the old ways that have passed on after your life in changing Counter with Jesus? In what ways is Christ actively recreating that which is marred by sin? And lastly, in what ways do you see Christ at work recreating the beauty of his fallen creation and creating something beautiful at work in you right now? Jesus, I thank you so much for the beauty of the cross, Lord, that you have made all things new, you are making all things new. Lord, I thank you that in the most ugly thing, in human history, you turned it into the greatest moment of beauty and triumph. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray.